When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. For this edition of the podcast, we're looking to the skies for a conversation about matters celestial, focusing on the second largest thing in it, visually at least, the moon, with science writer and now author Rebecca Boyle. Our host for this discussion is Daniel Glaser. Daniel is a neuroscientist who has worked for many years promoting public engagement with science. He's the director of engagement at the Royal Institution. Let's hear more from Daniel now. Rebecca Boyle is an award-winning science writer whose words have appeared in titles such as The Atlantic, New Scientist, The New York Times and more. She's a contributing editor at Scientific American and was also a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her new book is Our Moon. It's both a meticulous scientific account of the forces at play around that big rock in the sky and also something of a cultural history of how we humans on Earth have been inspired by it over millennia to write our own myths and stories, to study its astronomy and eventually actually to visit it too. There is talk of us going back soon. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. It's a delight. And although we're speaking remotely over a channel, uh, we are both looking up into the sky uh, at this object. I remember when I was uh, much younger and traveling around India on my own before there were mobile phones, Rebecca, and, and any of this kind of technology, the only way that you could arrange to meet people uh, that you met on the way was to to have a rendezvous. And I distinctly remember meeting someone delightful in northern India and agreeing to meet at the next full moon at the Taj Mahal. We both we both were going to go visit the Taj Mahal. And so I'll see you at the entrance to the Taj Mahal a little after sunset at the next full moon. And as I travelled through, I watched the phases of the moon changing. It's not something that I was able to do much at home. And it became a kind of companion and a, and a timekeeper for me on my travels. And uh, indeed, there was this lovely person at the entrance to the Taj Mahal. And, and I felt like I'd connected to a, you know, a much earlier period of, of time where the moon was much more present in, in people's lives. I just wonder, what was your early experience, your early memory of the moon as a child? Did it play a big role in your life? Did you gaze up at it often? I did. I, I, I live in Colorado and I grew up here. And it's one of these places in the world that is very fortunate to have a very clear and dark sky. And a lot of times people go outside to notice the stars, but I always looked at the moon and I think it was because it's so prominent, you know, and it's so prominent literally in the sky, but also in stories and children's literature. And culturally, I was always just drawn to it, I guess. And it's very bright here in Colorado. The atmosphere is thinner and so it looks brighter. It looks less hazy it looks clearer than it does in other places in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and I just always had a, a fondness for it. I also was kind of obsessed as a kid with the Apollo program. And my dad is an airline pilot, now retired, but, um, you know, came of age during the Apollo missions. And I just thought that was the most crazy thing to me. I, could, I just still kind of can't believe that people went up there and walked around and hit golf balls and drove a car and then came back. Um, and as a kid, it just it just blew my mind, and it, it still kind of does that whenever I look up at it. And I do think there's kind of a, a series of generational markers around that, aren't there? So I mean, for myself also, a very early memory is of being uh, woken up to 
be brought to the television to see a moon landing. And in fact, in children's television in the evenings, uh, they would sometimes give you an update um, uh, of, of, of where the moon landings had gone. And it was very much a lot of people of my generation I speak to, for them, it was their scientific coming of age. But I think also for the current generation, it must have a very different resonance because, I mean, I know there's all this scepticism, which we might talk about later, about whether people actually did go to the moon or, or, or not. But something that last happened, you know, 40 years ago or something, must feel very different and distant to the current generation. And I suppose the excitement that's uh, in all of our minds about the possibility of of people going back to the moon uh, is, is very present. Are you, are you feeling excited at the moment? Is this a timely moment to revisit your fascination with the moon, do you think? I think so. And I'm I'm a combination of excited and I don't want to sound pessimistic, but maybe apprehensive. I think people are not really prepared for how much is going to be happening up on the moon in the next few years. Starting, I mean, here very soon, the first commercial lunar lander is supposed to be launching at the end of December. And there's another one happening in January. There's another one happening in the spring of next year. Um, these are funded by NASA largely, but also ESA and other space agencies. There's a lot happening up in space and a lot going to the moon um, very soon. And I think people are probably not necessarily aware of that. Um, we certainly have not really had a, a broad conversation about that and what it means, you know, culturally, philosophically for this moment as we go explore and as we try to reach back to the moon and beyond the moon, it's there's a lot going on. And uh, I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited for people to pay pay a little bit more attention. Indeed. I, I like the idea that potentially people, uh, I'm sure they'll be um, rushing to download the podcast as soon as it's up on the Intelligence Squared site, but there's a possibility that some people will be listening to this podcast after the next moon landing, uh, which will have taken place after a yeah. and that's very exciting. Well, look, I loved your book very much. I thought, you know, Our Moon, it's a human history. And uh, I thought it would be sensible, perhaps, I mean, particularly because I like the way you've chosen to organise it, if we if we did take it in sections. Uh, for those that haven't yet read it, uh, you know, it's in three sections. And I think rather, rather beautifully uh, starts with a section on how the moon was made. And I think we all have some questions about that. And, and then how the moon made us, which again, as a narcissistic species, uh, we, we're all concerned with. And then finally, and that way we'll, we'll return, I think, to the moon landings, the question of how we make the moon. Um, I guess the first question, uh, you know, how the moon was made, from your research, Rebecca, is there what we would call a scientific consensus about that? You know, does everybody agree how the moon got there? Yes and no. Um, we, we kind of agree on the broad outlines of what must have happened to create the moon, but the particulars of that story are still very hotly debated. And it's it's actually a really active area of research partly because we have better computer models that can study this, and partly because we're going to be getting new samples that can help us understand the geology of the moon and, and how that must have come to be. But yeah, broadly speaking, people agree that some horrible thing happened when the Earth was very new. Um, something probably the size of the planet Mars collided with the very early Earth, and both of those objects sort of splattered apart and somehow recoalesced came back together, and the remnants of that impactor are the moon. Um, and, you know, even even that actually is still debated. Is is the moon actually part of Earth? And, you know, two things completely combined and then sloshed back together into two separate objects? Is the moon the remnant core of whatever impactor hit Earth? 
is the impactor actually buried within Earth? Those those are open questions. Um, but you know the the must it, the story that happened must have included some Titanic collision between another planetary body and the very early Earth. And just to say that that would not have been survivable, right? You know that that, that collision would, no. have, would not have been good news for anyone who was around. Yeah, this would have been before any life evolved, but it, luckily because it would have been completely obliterated. And I mean, literally down to the core of both of these objects, like it would have just been raindrops of molten rock in a cloud. Um, and how that came and back from... together is still not totally sure. And Number Geeks, I mean, how long ago, roughly, do we think that happened? Uh, about 4.5 billion years ago, give or take a few hundred million years. Um, the exact dating is still another open question. It's it's actually kind of hard to figure out based on um, moon rocks when this happened, but it was very early in the solar system's history. So Earth was still probably freshly baked and maybe not even really holding an atmosphere yet or anything else. Um, very, very early. And, and you talk about Earth 1.0 and then what we're on now is Earth 2.0. So Earth 2.0 has been around uh, you know, post the collision and post the, the creation of the moon for a lot longer uh, than Earth 1.0. Yes. I guess as a scientist, I'm both kind of pleased and disappointed by the fact that uh, you know, there's still so much controversy. I'd kind of thought that it's the sort of thing we would have sorted out by now. But you're saying that actually it's still an active uh, topic of research. And, and, and you're suggesting that, that analysis of, of, of soil, of samples from the moon itself is, a, is an important part of the story. When you said that there was this collision, it all got mixed up. Does that mean that the moon, roughly speaking, is made of the same stuff as we are? That's what the samples seem to be saying, which is really strange, actually, from a planetary science and chemistry point of view. Like if the moon is supposed to be made up of the remnant of whatever object hit Earth, um, it would look different just because of how planets form. You know, our ideas of how planets form anyway, are that they coalesce around a baby star, the sun in our case, and they, you know, combine under their own gravity and each of them has a slightly different chemistry based on where this occurs. And, you know, I think in, in the book, I compare it to having an accent. <laughs> I'm American and I grew up in the West. And so I have kind of a basic flat <laughs> American accent. And that gives away my place of origin, you know, and, you know, your English. And, you know, to a trained British listening ear, you would be able to tell maybe geographically what part of England you grew up in. Um, you know, is your accent from maybe Western England or Northern England? It's it's distinguishable by somebody who can tell these things. And the same is true for rocks. We can look at them and say, well, this must have formed roughly around this place, around the sun, and at this time, based on the chemistry in the rocks. So whatever hit Earth would look a little bit different, but it doesn't. The lunar samples that came back during Apollo look identical to rocks on Earth isotopically, which is to say that the the makeup of the rocks is chemically identical, which doesn't really make any sense. Um, they should not be twins, you know, and that tells us that the moon must be part of Earth, at least Earth point 1.0. Um, and that tells us a little bit about how this must have occurred. It must have been extraordinarily violent and both objects completely blew apart and then recombined into these two bodies that we have now, the, the moon and the Earth. Um, otherwise, it doesn't really make any sense. It would be like, you know, your cousin having the same DNA as your identical twin, which, you know, is explicable, <laughs> I guess. 
maybe by some interesting, uh, you know, circumstances, but it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and so the story must be more complicated than we thought. So there are some weird things about the moon, aren't there? Which, I mean, I guess it's hard to know whether they're sort of coincidental or whether they are integral. I mean, firstly, it's like it's the same size as the sun pretty much, uh, in, in, and that's probably just chance. But then there's this weird bit. I was always trying to get my head around it, but sort of if you have something going round something else, then you'd kind of expect that the face of the thing doing the orbiting uh, would change all the time, right? Because the chance of it rotating itself as it goes around us at exactly the same rate so that it points directly at us all the time, it seems almost impossible. So there's a bunch of mysteries like that, which, I don't know, for me anyway, seem really weird. Do we understand why those are true? Why does it always show its same face to us? That is a function of a lot of physics, um, but, but the upshot being that it's it's called tidally locked. And so the rotation speed of the moon matches the speed at which it orbits the Earth. So the moon actually is rotating. It does sort of spin around on its axis the way Earth does, um, the way everything does in, in our solar system and, and the universe, as far as we know. Um, but the speed at which it is rotating, it's day, if, you know, to so to speak, um, is the same length as the time it takes the moon to go around the Earth. Um, this is somewhat of an inevitability based on their motion through the sky over time. I mean, this the solar system, I should say, not the sky, but the, you know, empty space around the sun. Um, it's It's come to rest in that manner. And this is a very complicated interaction that has to do with their own gravity, their mass, their distance from one another, um, and the interrelationship between all those things. But yeah, it's, it is weird. It's it's very strange. Weird. Um, and it, it means that we only see one hemisphere of the moon, you know, for all of time until the 1960s when we sent the first satellites around it. Um, and not only is it tidally locked in that we see only one side of the moon, but they're very different. The far side of the moon is very geologically different than the near side. And that might be because of this tidal locking and that, you know, one half was hotter because early Earth was hotter. Um, it may be that Earth's gravity is interfering with it. Oh, so what, we heated it up or something. Yeah, that's one theory that, you know, the as Earth 2.0 was cooling down and the moon was much closer, Earth was radiating and still is radiating a lot of heat. And that sort of melted part of the moon or kept it warm longer than the far side. Um, but we don't actually know. <laughs> that's just, that's another open question, why the, the near side and the far side are so different geologically. So we've spoken then a little bit about how the moon was made. And again, you've, I don't know, both excited and disappointed me by telling me that throughout your research, you've still not uh, uh, deduced a, a consensus amongst scientists. But I guess that means there's there's still more things to do. I suppose, therefore, partly motivates the return to the moon to investigate it more deeply. Yes. But I do think then there's a bunch of stuff we should talk about about how the moon makes us. And I suppose by us, I guess we'll end up as as humans. But, uh, you know, once it was up there and Earth 2.0 was, was here being orbited by it, what kinds of effects do we know the moon has on the Earth? And I suppose everybody would think initially of tides. And indeed, your book does begin rather um, poignantly with a with a, a narrative of a military exploit uh, that was uh, determined by the tides. That suggests that we haven't still completely understood the way the tides work, or at least in living memory, there was still quite a lot to understand. To talk to us about how tides go. Yeah, the, the tide is 
one of the most complicated things I've ever tried to understand. <laughs> it's simple. C goes up, C goes down. What's to understand? Um, it is not nearly as simple as you might think. I'm sorry to tell you that it is far more complex. <laughs> it has to do with the way that the Earth rotates, the way that the moon rotates, the way that the moon orbits. Um, you know, as we learned from from Kepler in the, in the 1600s, um, nothing that orbits another body in space orbits in a perfect circle. They orbit in an elliptical pattern, an ellipse, so it looks like an oval. And that means that sometimes it's closer and sometimes it's further away. Um, and on Earth, we have recently started calling this phenomenon a supermoon when the moon is closer in its orbit. It looks larger. It is brighter. It's about 14% brighter when it's at a supermoon full moon phase. Um, and this has a huge effect on the tide. It can either dramatically raise high tides or dramatically weaken low tides. And until really recently, like the last 50 years, we did not fully appreciate how much that mattered. Um, and it's because these are such complicated interactions between the Earth and the Moon, and because Earth's own geography plays such a role, like the depth of a tidal basin, the you know shallowness or not of, of, a, of a beach, um, has all plays this big role in how the tide rises and falls. And just to be clear on this, so at different points of the moon's uh, orbit, it's nearer and further from Earth by, you know, a, a few percent, maybe you say about 14% or so. And that is enough to change the actual height of the tides uh, over the course of the year. It's really extraordinary to think that we are so connected in that way. Yes. Yeah. I think it's it's still surprising to me how much of an effect that can have. And it's, you know, on certain spots on Earth, it's a really dramatic effect. Um, in the Bay of Fundy, um, off the coast of Canada, it's like, you know, a matter of feet, like really a big difference. Um, on the beaches of Normandy, same. Um, the tide comes in very quickly and it changes very dramatically depending on the cycle of the moon and, and its distance relative to Earth in its cycle, which changes throughout the year. And you'd have thought that's the kind of thing which could have been observed. I mean, I remember we visited a place called Holy Island uh, recently, which is off the Northumbrian coast. And there are these massive signs telling you about what time the tide will go up and go down. But as far as I'm aware, they didn't distinguish between different times of year. It was just a sort of regular tide table. But people have been observing this stuff very carefully for ages, and in fact, observing the moon very carefully for ages. So it still surprises me that there, that there are things we're still getting wrong about that. I think sometimes we take it for granted, you know, it's it's the moon. <laughs> it's the most obvious thing in the sky, you know, during the night especially, but even during the day when it's in its, you know, waning phase right now, you know, in the morning you can still see it. it's very bright, not far from the sun, but it's very obvious. And so we just sort of get used to it. And we know the tide is because of its influence. We get used to that. And over years, we just are like, oh yeah, that's there. And it doesn't, doesn't require a lot of thought. And I think sometimes we don't give it a lot of thought, but I hope this book changes people's mind on that and, and lets people realize how much it still influences us and how dramatic those influences really are. So look, we're familiar very much, I think, with the idea of the circadian rhythm. And as a neuroscientist, I know that almost all cells in the human body and, and many, many cells in biology have this 24-hour clock um, that they use the light of the sun to synchronize, but broadly speaking, they, they have a pace. And, and many, many functions in the human body and in animal bodies are determined by that cycle. But I was really surprised to read in your book about the amount of timekeeping around the moon cycle that is observed 
in biology. There's a great word by German, terrible, Rebecca, but um, you have this great word, Zeitgeber, is that right? Mm-hmm. What is, uh, yes. What's what's Zeitgeber? And is the moon really uh, uh, determining biology uh, uh, to, to a large extent? So yeah, this is, this is a German word for which there's not really a good English equivalent, but it means time giver, essentially. Um, it's time setter, maybe. Um, it's something that you can use to pace a clock. And the most powerful of these is light. Um, and we know that from circadian biology that, you know, this light of the sun especially is the most important time setter, time giver um, that sets our circadian rhythms. Um, but it turns out there's a circa-lunar clock as well. And this is more obvious in marine organisms. And this actually been mostly studied in marine organisms. It probably exists in other organisms too. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. You talk about the speckled sea louse yeah. called Eurydice pulchra. Yes. What's a speckled sea louse and why does it care so much about the moon? Uh, this is one of those creatures that depends on the tide um, or knowledge of the tide to be able to reproduce. So it needs to lay its eggs um, in an area where it's not going to get, they're not going to get washed away, but they'll be submerged enough to be safe um, and kept moist, but you know, not dragged out to sea, also not exposed to birds or other predators that might eat them. And so the, the timing of their egg laying is really important. And they use the moon to do this because the moon is what drives the tide. And so they have these chromatophores, um, which are light sensing cells in their skin. They're, they're sort of a type of pigment um, in their skin. And that's not the right word really for a sea louse, but um, their, their uh, you know, exterior 
Um, and this is the similar phenomenon that is in cephalopods, like um, octopus and squid have these sort of um, pigment-containing cells, uh, but they can sense light directly. And the timing at which they track their reproduction um, is synchronized to the lunar cycle as well as the solar cycle. So there's two different clocks that they run in their cells. And the scientists who studied this, you know, looked at them genetically, you know, on a microscopic level and looked at their genetic um, material to see how they were dividing time. And they initially thought it was just cutting the day in half, you know, a 24-hour cycle cut in half is 12 hours. But it's actually 12.4 hours, which corresponds to the time of um, between high and, and low tide, which is the lunar cycle. And so it's it must be synchronized to the moon, probably through gravitation, which is remarkable, um, and also likely through the moon's light. So it, it just gives us a sense that the moon is literally controlling cells in organisms that are smaller than the tip of a pencil. I find that totally fascinating. And, and the idea, I mean, so it's sort of almost plausible that cells can keep track of sunlight because it comes and goes so regularly. But the idea that, that creatures can track a phenomenon that's, what is it, you know, a little over 28 days and to adapt their biology. And plants also, is that right, Rebecca? It's not just animals, but also plants are tracking moon cycles. Is this right? Yeah, this was one of my favorite lines of research in this book. Is There's a Scottish botanist um, who studied this. And he, you know, I think he had a sense that this might be the case based on the movements of leaves and plants. And if you have like a... a what's the word I'm looking for, um, time lapse. If you were to film plants throughout, you know, the course of a day, um, you can watch their leaves track light and they, they kind of move. And if you're looking at them just for a moment or two, you wouldn't notice this, but as the day goes by, they sort of track the sun across the sky. Um, and he had a sense that they were maybe tracking the moon as well. Um, and ended up doing a bunch of experiments that also looked at the timing of this signal, which drives... Uh, leaf inflorescence and, and leaf movements in plants. And then he even took us into, into space on the International Space Station. There was a study um, a few years ago now that looked at this movement of plant leaves. And it turned out that they did the same thing even in space where the moon and you know sunrises and sunsets happen every 90 minutes. Um, they were changing the timing of their movement to track the moon even in space. And it just indicates that, you know, there are some effects that we don't really understand yet that are probably happening through gravity and on scales that are hard for us to study. But the moon is playing some kind of role and life on Earth is paying attention. That's really interesting. And of course, it's funny, isn't it? When we, we talk about trees and, and the timescales, there's, there's some, if you speed up the life of trees, then they sort of have affection and, and mourning and loss and engagement and conversations. It's really extraordinary, I think, as you lengthen out the timescales to get the sense of that. Now, I think, you know, when we look at uh, uh, human life and we look at cycles, clearly there's days. By the way, out of interest, I think weeks are the most interesting cycles in, in, in human life because there's absolutely no biological phenomenon, as far as I'm aware, that has a seven-day cycle. So that's probably God came, well, came the week, surely. If you look if you look at the moon, oh. it does. The lunar cycle is 29 and a half days, but think about that as 28 days. That's how we usually perceive it, 29 days-ish. Divide that by four. Okay. All right. That's so the moon even week. gave us weeks. I think but so. But if we look at months, <laughs> um, particularly for female biology in, in humans, and I guess I don't know enough about 
um, uh, biology of, of the reproductive system in, in animals. Uh, women's periods are usually around, but not exactly uh, uh, the cycle of the moon. As, my, as far as I understand it, overall in the population, women's cycles are not synchronized to the moon, but they are very, you know, suggestively close uh, in, in, in length. What's our current thinking? Is that just one of those weird coincidences? Or do we think that uh, there is a causal link between the, the period of the moon and, and the periods of, of, of female humans? This is one of those things that comes and goes as an idea. And I think right now, most people would, would argue that epidemiologically, it's pretty much impossible to prove this correlation. And that's in large part because of the main, you know, Zeitgeber um, light is now mostly artificial light. And we're flooded with that all the time. And if, if that's, if there's any effect on reproductive biology from light, it's not the moon anymore. It's, you know, lights in our bedrooms, it's our phones, our, our TV screens. Um, so it's, it would drown out that signal. But, you know, a long time ago, people definitely thought this was the case. And as modern medicine has evolved and modern society has evolved, I and mean, now we have, you know, hormones in our diet and our water supplies, people are exposed to different chemicals than they've ever been before. A lot of those things have effects as well. So it's really hard to separate the signals and, and draw some direct correlation. But I mean, think about it in terms of it's logical, <laughs> like it's the same length. And, you know, again, it's really hard to go back and we can't go back in time and, and look at this. We don't have a way of really understanding evolutionary psychology. So a lot of this is speculation. But the fact that they're so similar in length is, I think, very intriguing. And even if we can't prove it directly, you know, which modern scientists would like to do, that doesn't mean it's not real. You know, maybe over evolutionary time, meaning millions of years, you know, there was some correlation between activity and lunar cycles. Like, and this gets into, you know, some really highly speculative evolutionary psychology stuff that I don't want to like overstate. But in the book, I talk about like, you know, if, if people are leaving on, you know, hunting parties and they're using the full moon to be able to see longer during the night and, and cover more ground, they're gone in that period of time. Maybe they're back when the moon is not up or the moon is not providing much light. Then there's more chances for people to reproduce. You know, um, it, it makes a certain kind of sense that there would be some physiological connection between the use of the moon and, you know, the chances of reproduction. And over evolutionary time, that ends up becoming a pressure and a selection. And maybe people synchronize to the moon just because their ancestors did, too. And, you know... This is this is the idea behind evolutionary pressure. And so, you know, it's 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 speculative. I don't want to claim that this can be proven, but I don't think it's a coincidence either. I suppose the other thing that we would think about in terms of, of, of human biology and psychology, and this is clearly a vestigial word that we have in English for lunacy or lunatic, which etymologically certainly derives from, from the moon. Uh, is there, a, as it were, a basis for this apparent psychiatric correlation do people exhibit symptoms uh, of, of a psychotic or psychiatric nature more frequently at different periods of the moon? Or is that another one of those popular myths which has no evidence? This is another one where my answer is um, yes and no, <laughs> because this is, you know, very strong anecdata over like human history. Oh, I love um, the phrase anecdata. Is, That's beautiful. Yes. Yeah, this is throughout literature, but also just, you know, cultural history and, and pop culture that like, oh, the moon is up, but it's good. people are going crazy, you know. But if you look into the medical literature, there is actually evidence of this. Um, and it's true for people who have um, 
things like bipolar disorder, you know, they have episodes of mania and depressive behavior. Um, episodes of mania seem to increase during full moon cycles. And we don't really know why, but it may be because there's more light at night, people are restless, um, you know, some of these triggers that might influence manic behavior might be stronger when the moon is up. Um, but this is in this is in medical literature. Like this is not just people joking about it. Um, but at the same time, there's plenty of of stories about it going to any hospital emergency department during a full moon, and any nurse there will tell you, "Oh, it's a full moon. People are going crazy." And you know, it's it's hard to prove that in a way that's you know has a a high p value, <laughs> a statistical significance for scientific research. But again, that that doesn't mean it's not something happening. Um, and I think it's worth considering. I suppose the final question then, you know, the, the third section of your book, I guess, is about how we have understood and, and, and constructed the moon. And I guess the first thing that intrigued me uh, in your book in that regard was how detailed and for how long we've been observing the moon. And, and, and I guess there are a couple of different kinds of evidence you've got. You've got some sort of uh, markings on, on objects that look like cycles of the moon. But I was particularly interested in in these barrows, tell us about the barrows, these large structures that people uh, have made, which we have, you know, that long, long, long ago that we only have perhaps radar or aerial evidence for, but they seem to have been tracking the moon by, by making large structures. Is that right? Yeah, this happens throughout Europe um, and, you know, in North America as well, in South America too. Um, but the most obvious structures that are now the oldest known structures are in northeastern Scotland. Um, and in these areas, people seem to have made earthen monuments that were intended to track the moon and the sun together. Um, and, you know, Stonehenge is the most famous of these, you know, um, megalith monuments that use large stone arrangements to um, correlate the people using them to the sun. And that thought is thought to be a calendaring system that people use to figure out when their solstices were going to be occurring, and then they could kind of figure out their year, their calendar. And we're familiar with that, right? So people show up on on uh, you know Midsummer's Day or Midwinter's Day, and the sun lines up with the stones and so on. So yes, the, the sun stuff, I guess, we're all pretty familiar with. But is it right that for a long time people thought there wasn't much moon stuff, and and it's that thought has recently changed? Yes, yeah, and so. You know, it's thought that there's been a lot of these solar alignments throughout Europe, and we those are well studied. But um, there are probably some, there definitely are some lunar ones as well, and um, probably some that were intended to correlate the moon and the sun. And this is one of those leaps that people made early on that's actually pretty difficult to do. Um, and even now, you know, the the moon and the sun are pretty close in terms of the number of moons that you would see in a solar year. So between the time of solstices. Um, but it's about 12 days shorter. And so over a couple of years, you know, if you have a calendar system that is using the moon to track months, which the word itself month comes from moon, um, then you have, you know, 12 in one year. But over a couple of years, you're going to be running out um, and you're going to fall behind. So if you if you have a calendar based on moons and you have, a you know, the fifth moon of the year is when we plant our crops or something. Um, over time, it's suddenly going to be the fourth moon of the year and the third moon of the year, and things sort of fall out of sync. So you need a way to set those things together. And it's thought that one of these structures in northeastern Scotland and Aberdeen is um, the earliest example of people trying to do this, of connecting the lunar cycle with the solar year. Um, 
And this is a huge leap in thinking in, in time of, in you know, 10,000 years ago, long before any recorded writing that survives, um, long before any, you know, tradition that we can trace back. And so um, it's just, it's evidence that people were using the moon for a very long time to figure out their lives, to figure out the cycles of their lives. It's very striking, isn't it, when we think about the the, the the three main monotheistic religions currently, that they've each come up with a different solution to that thing that you talk about, this jitter between uh, the sun cycle and the moon cycle. So Islam, the, the, the Islamic calendar basically just follows the lunar months and, and what were originally summer festivals can come at any time of the year. And the Christian calendar's pretty much given up on the moon, right? I mean, the months in the, in, in the Western or Christian calendar ignore it. And then the Jewish calendar has a different solution again of as I understand it, leap leap months rather than leap days. So every every few years you insert not an extra day like we do on February the 29th, but a whole extra month, and that way it resynchronizes. But clearly people have been struggling with this problem for thousands of years and come up with different solutions. Yeah, and they all involve the moon. Um, and, you know, people have come up with different tricks to bring those two in sync. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in the book I talk about how Julius Caesar is the first person to sort of divorce the moon and the sun um, from the year. And we still use the Julian calendar. It's now the Gregorian calendar had some revisions, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the same calendar that he came up with essentially. And um, it's the first one that no longer uses the moon to mark the beginning of a new month, but divides them kind of arbitrarily. So then I suppose was it, there was a sentence that struck me in the book. You, you write, by the 16th century, the moon mainly caused cosmological misunderstandings. And I guess this is quite a Western-centric uh, bit of the story, but I, I do find it fascinating. I do remember a, a line from John Donne, uh, uh, to sort of dull sublunary lovers, uh, to compare people who, whose passions are not as rarefied and long-lasting as his in various senses. Um, what, what, does, you know, what did the cosmology of the Renaissance look like in terms of where they put the moon? And then why did why did the moon cause so many confusions? Do you think in 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 the sort of dawn of modern astronomy, the, the working out of how the solar system actually functions? I think before the Renaissance, you know, the idea of the moon was um, this sort of perfect realm, um, you know, and the the sublunary realm comes from Aristotle, and he talks about you know everything beyond Earth as being perfect, um, and the moon having craters and sort of like modeled appearance that maybe be a little bit imperfect is because of its proximity to earth having been polluted by earth. Um, and this idea carries forward, you know, into the enlightenment really. Um, but I think the, the main consternation that the moon kind of gave us in our understanding of our cosmology that until, you know, Copernicus, we thought that the earth was the center of the universe. And this was actually quite logical not just theological, but scientifically logical, because why would you not think that? You know, you're standing on this place, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, it's a sphere, we've figured that out, you know, it, this must be the center of everything, and all the, the firmament goes around it. And I think the moon is one of the ways in which that makes sense. The moon obviously orbits Earth, you can, you can tell, and you can tell that the sun lights it, um, and it goes around us. So why wouldn't everything else? That's a beautiful you know, idea. If, so if so this this notion of the heat, what do we call it? The geocentric universe, the, the universe with the Earth at the center. The moon uh, helps us to stay stuck with that mistake because it 
and we would say by contrast with everything else in the universe, but it actually does orbit the Earth and it's the nearest thing and it seems to just push that intuition uh, to last a lot longer than it might otherwise have done. Yeah, I think so. And I think this extends into, you know, Christian theology. You know, he made one light to light the day and one to light the night. They're the same apparent size in the sky, the moon and the sun. And that's because although the sun is 400 times larger than the moon, it's also 400 times further away. So that's why we have total solar eclipses. They're the same size. That is a crazy coincidence. And I'd love someone to explain that to me. <laughs> that's mad. And like I said, as you said, right, I mean, as we said at the beginning, we just don't know why that is, right? I mean, that is just one of those weird things. Yeah. We don't. We That is just an unbelievable coincidence for, you know, this time on Earth. Um, but yeah, it, it, if if you can tell that the moon travels around the Earth and that the sun is what lights it, it makes some logical sense to extend that to thinking that that's the case for everything else as well. Uh, why would you think otherwise, really? You know, um, Copernicus and some Arab mathematicians at the same time figured out the truth, but because they couldn't, they couldn't reconcile it. They couldn't reconcile the current system of geocentrism with mathematics, and they figured out the truth. But, you know, until you look pretty closely, it's pretty easy to accept <laughs> that, you know, we're at the middle and the moon goes around and the sun goes around and everything else goes around us too. So we should probably fast forward, I guess, now to to, to modern times because once uh, Kepler had worked out his his orbits and and uh, people had got over themselves and allowed that we actually do go around the sun rather than it going around us and so on, uh, things went pretty smoothly. And then we managed, uh, you know, partly through I guess nationalistic uh, fervor uh, from Kennedy uh, to reach to reach the moon, and the sign that the astronauts left on the moon, I think is very interesting, talks about being there for all mankind. But you write towards the end of your book that, that you have concerns that, that that sense of altruism and collective endeavor and the moon being for all of us is, is to some extent under threat, perhaps even from NASA itself. You write Na NASA's intentions are not about going for all mankind. It's more about extraction and the use of space resources to which you gloss mining. Is mining the moon for human benefit a thing? Is that is that going to happen soon, do you reckon? And, and what, are, what are the causes going to be? Is it going to be a lot more fraught than it was? I do think it's going to get a lot more fraught. And I think it's, you know, it's freighted with a lot of uh, jingoism, you know, in, in the US, in Europe, in China, certainly in India, um, other, other parts of Asia, you know, everyone wants a piece of it. And that's partly for national pride, excitement. You know, India landed a lander up there in a rover a few months ago, and it's been such an enormous source of national pride and excitement, which is great for them. And it's super exciting and inspiring a whole new generation of engineers and scientists. Um, you know, and that's the case that happened here in with Apollo in, in the 70s and 80s. Um, Russia is still interested in landing up there. China is landing rovers up there, having, you know, a program to land astronauts at some point. Um, I think there's a, a kind of headlong rush in that direction. And it, as an American, you know, I, I think a lot about westward expansion in this country and how quickly that happened and the consequences of that, um, which we're still reckoning with, you know, and, and I think I'm concerned about that happening on the moon. And the difference, of course, is that there are no humans up there that will be exploited the way that, you know, native populations in this country were. But I think that, you know, there's a very real chance of that having echoed um, in the future on the moon if, as corporations and 
private interests and governments, you know, send a lot of capital and a lot of people up there in the next decades. Um, I think we need to be very careful about what we want from it and what we want from one another. And um, it's it's going to be very different just because the times are different. The technology is more advanced. Our understanding of how to get there is more advanced. Um, so it's going to happen. I, I'm confident that people will be up there again soon um, from many countries and probably many private companies as well. Maybe for mining purposes, that's a, a stated goal of many space agencies and private companies, maybe for rocks, maybe for some maybe slightly more far afield things like helium-3, which could be used to power reactors, um, for water, you know, if it can extract um, hydrogen and oxygen molecules from lunar soil, it can be transformed into rocket fuel, which would allow us to go to Mars or asteroids for mining there. Um, I do think it's likely to be an outpost fairly soon. And I think it's really important for people to think about what that should look like um, as opposed to what it could look like. And you're suggesting that a colonial, a colonialist lens is perhaps, is the right one through which to look at the current endeavors, which I suppose is, is a somewhat depressing thought. I feel like it's, it feels familiar, you know, in that, in that way. And I think some of the language around it from private companies is, is, is very much limbed in that um, background. And I think, that's a cause for caution and a cause for concern. You know, it's, I don't think that we need to be exploitative and extractive along with excited. I think we can separate those things. We can be excited and we can endeavor to dare mighty things. As NASA says, we can, you know, take bold risks and and do crazy stuff because we can. Um, That doesn't mean we need to be irresponsible and, you know, hasty. I think we can we can be deliberate. We should learn from experience on this planet and on the moon. You know, the, the space race ended up going really well, but it, it didn't it may not have. Um, you know, it, it could have been much more dangerous. There that we did lose several people. We could have lost more. Um the end result was a peaceful milestone for humanity. And I think that's another lesson as we go forward. And therefore, there are these two images, aren't there? There's looking up at the moon and, and, and I suppose, from what you're saying, being uh, troubled and nervous about its future. But we're still left with those extraordinary images from the moon looking back at Earth, which allow us to see ourselves differently. Um, and that perspective, uh, you know, those, those, I think, extraordinary images still for me. Uh, uh, there's uh, Apollo Remastered is a beautiful book that's recently been released, which... Yes. Uh, which, which remasters a lot of the f- uh, photographs in there. But still the pictures of us from the moon are the most uh, are the most moving i think are you queuing up rebecca uh, to be on the the first human uh, uh, passenger flight to the moon would you <laughs> like to go there what do you think it would be like for you i don't know i i always i get asked this question a lot and it's funny cuz you know when i was a kid it would have been a, oh yeah i'm i can't wait you know and i think as an adult i'm a little bit less excited in part because i have kids now and you know i have responsibilities on earth um, but I think part of it is that like, it's not a crazy idea. It's a possible notion. And it feels like something that, you know, is a little bit more, I'm, I'm a little bit more hesitant to share my own willingness to go if I think it might actually materialize. <laughs> if that makes it sense. Does. Like it's one thing to say like, oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, but it's one other thing to say like, well, here's your flight suit. You know, I don't, I don't know that I would make that giant leap. I like the end of your the, the last sentence of the book. You say, walk outside under the moon tonight or tomorrow morning. 
look up, walk along with it and say hello. And I think that sense of it's being a constant presence, something that's always been there for us as a species and for most of our time as a planet. And I think your book beautifully captures those different perspectives. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been fun. That was Rebecca Boyle, author of Our Moon, available from Scepter Books, part of Hodder and Stoughton Publishing. I've been Dr. Daniel Glazer, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.